Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. We're going to continue our study this morning in 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you need a Bible, there are some available on the back table. Um, as you're turning there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just a couple of things to make mention of here again this morning, especially if you came in after the announcements. The first of which is, and this one wasn't even in the announcements, this is a bit of a late ad, but a necessary ad. Uh, we try throughout the course of the year to place an emphasis on special opportunities for just praise, worship, time and prayer, especially as the Spirit leads, and this is one of those moments. And so next Sunday... January 30th, 6 o'clock, we're going to have a time of uh, prayer and praise, but we're not going to meet here. We're going to meet over at the Killian property there with Discovery Church, and um, won't go into all the details of that right now, but many of you know that we've been in the process of pursuing a new property, and so we'll meet over there in the sanctuary there, and we'll join up with uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ from that fellowship and just have a time of worship, a time of prayer for needs in our community, needs in our body. Certainly we'll pray over just the situation with the property that the Lord's will would be done there. But uh, just in obedience to the leading of the Spirit, we're going to gather in that way. And so we would welcome you to come out for that. We'll continue to um, share details for that throughout the week as well as uh, location for those unfamiliar. And so that'll be next Sunday, uh, the 30th at 6 o'clock, and, um, and then again this evening, 5 o'clock, right back here in the sanctuary for our annual family meeting. This is an opportunity to review the past year, review the financials. That's something that uh, we are required to do, but something that's good for us to do with those who consider this their church home. And so if that's you, we'd encourage you to be here tonight. Normally, we would not live stream that. We'd just make an effort to make it a bit more of a private uh, event, but in light of the circumstances that need no explanation, we will live stream that tonight. But if you're able, I would encourage you to be here. Um, if only as a favor to me, it's much more exciting to present that information when you have somebody in front of you instead of to a camera. So uh, uh, I like family meetings where the family's together. So uh, if you're so inclined, we would uh, certainly welcome you to be here for that. So. Well, let's, uh, let's make our way towards the text here this morning, but I want to I do this first as well. I think it's important, those of you who know me and have been with us for uh, years now have, have grown accustomed to, uh, to us doing this, but it was mentioned last week that January is Sanctity of Human Life Month. Um, it is a month that's sort of designated, uh, as many months are, to consider that particular topic. Now last week we considered a little more specifically MLK Day and the work that Martin Luther King Jr. did for the advancement of civil rights in our country. And, and of course embedded within that, and I think we saw it in our text as well, uh, just the, the fundamental... Uh, understanding that there is inherent value in human life, that all individuals are made in the image of God and because of that are deserving of, of, of respect, that there is worth, there is value, and it's there because of our Creator God. It's not something that we seek to earn, though that's the pattern we often fall into. And I touched then briefly last week uh, on the plight of the unborn in our country as well and the issue of abortion, recognizing, of course, that the first 
civil right is the right to life, uh, that it begins there. It's a necessary foundation. And this morning you heard in the announcements that Daybreak Ministries is offering a post-abortion support group that will be kicking off uh, this spring. And so I want to bring attention to that as well, that if you have, man or woman, if you have abortion as a part of your past and you have not yet recognized the freedom and the forgiveness that is available to you in Jesus Christ, then this is an opportunity for you. I can testify to the number of people I have seen go through this post-abortion study. It's a biblical study. People who are, uh, who are decades past this experience in their life and really for the first time are beginning to walk in a sense of forgiveness and freedom. And have long been in a prison of their own making, believing the lies of the enemy, that they just can't simply be forgiven for such things in their past. And and it is a sad thing, but a wonderful thing to see people begin to to see and to experience that that freedom. And so I would encourage you, if that's you, um, whether one of the... uh, papers on the back table there, or even see Wendy afterwards. She'll be facilitating that course. Um, We've got a great partnership with Daybreak, and so take advantage of that. I would encourage you. And and this past week as well was the March for Life in Washington, D.C. It's always a tremendous gathering and and show of support for life in our country. And um, for the sake of Uh, here this morning, again, doing this each and every year, because I think it's important, especially if you're newer, to hear this from us. For the sake of making it clear our stance, as the ministry of Calvary Chapel Northeast, may may I say that we stand for the issue of life. That once again, the first civil right is the right to life. And that our country's sad history of demeaning and minimizing the life of the unborn in particular, and from their many lives, has had profound negative impacts on all walks of life. Individuals, people, humans are formed in the image of God. And as I've said already, deserving of respect. There's inherent worth, there's inherent value, there's inherent dignity. Our country, the United States of America, is listed with only a few countries in the world in terms of its egregious position on abortion. We are among lists with China and North Korea. That doesn't make any sense. So hear me clearly on this, because sometimes this needs to be said simply this way. Abortion is wrong, period. There is no way around this, despite many people's attempts you will not find support for it biblically. So then, even when it's hard, we must stand for this truth because it impacts everything on down the line, from womb to the tomb. If you don't start there, there's no value on down the line. There can't be. But here's the problem. And so hear me on this this morning as well. The church has largely done a good job of declaring that abortion is wrong. You might say, well, what's the problem with that? Because we haven't done the greatest job of providing hope and alternatives. And so judgment and condemnation can be as equally damaging. 
So then, we must be careful not to be simply pro-birth, but pro-life. Pro-life all the way through. And let me say this. I am proud of this fellowship. I'm proud of this church family. The pro-life story is a strong one at Calvary Chapel Northeast. From involvement with various ministries in our community, advocating for life, supporting life, walking with people who have made decisions for life, whether that's at daybreak or a moment of hope or at Lighthouse for Life. And you can hear, if you come to our family meeting tonight, you can hear more about ministry partners that we, that we work with. To families in our fellowship that have fostered, to families in our fellowship that have adopted, this is the pro-life story. It's not simply saying that life is valued, but, but showing it in your actions. And, and, and many of those stories are even unknown amongst us. Families that we know or people we interact with, and we don't even realize some aspects of, of how God has worked in that family and the things that He has done. It's a wonderful thing. And truly, if our, if our fellowship were able to be together in one place today, if it was just everybody here, everybody was well, everybody was healthy, everybody was ready to come out, no concerns about ice or snow, we were just all here, we could look around and we could see such a representation of life. And we would see diversity of culture and ethnicity and of age. And, and we would see within the, the, the families the stories of adoption and wonderful, wonderful things. And, and I'll, I'll begin to bring this part to a close here this morning and just share this, that our story is still being written. Our story of life is still being written. There's still more to come, no doubt. And there's a specific family that many of you know of already that are in this process. And there's likely to be more in the months ahead. But the Owens family, Dave and Allie, they're in the process right now of pursuing adoption. They've got little Mary Kay who's going to be coming in the months ahead. They'll be going to the Philippines again. And so what I want to encourage you with, and there will be more detail that comes with this over time. I'll just share briefly here this morning. But we've got an opportunity then, as a body, to put these things into practice to say, yes, we're going to value life, and to come around this family. And hopefully in time, come around other families, but to help them and, and pray for them and encourage them and, and figure out what those needs are as they go through this transition, as they travel, as they bring a child home. It's, there's a lot that goes into that and to make ourselves available to them. But one thing specifically that we're going to do, because it's coming up soon, and I want you guys praying about this, I want you thinking about this. Here's the wonderful thing, by the way, about not passing the plate in church, okay? I'm not making judgment on any, anybody else or any other church that does it, but here's a wonderful thing in our fellowship that we don't put emphasis on that, is that I get to then say things like this, okay? We, this, this year at our chili cook-off, it's the Super Chili Bowl, Woohoo! Okay, if you haven't been to it before, you don't want to miss it. It's a big event, okay? And the person who wins the best chili gets their name on the, the plaque which has the golden ladle, okay? Sounds really impressive, and it is, okay? You'll see it eventually. We'll roll it out. It's like the Lombardi Trophy. And, uh, and so, it, you know, it's really, a, it's, a, it's a thing, right? You, so you want to submit your chili, and everybody eats chili, and it's fun, and it's fellowship. But this year, for the first time, and perhaps this year only, but this is what we're going to do this year, is when we come to this chili cook-off, we're also going to make it a bit of a competition to see how much money we can raise to help this family in the pursuit of their adoption from the Philippines, okay? And that's why I say it's fun when I get to do things like that because I'm not hitting you up for money all the time. So when I come and I talk to you about money, I get to say, hey, be praying about this for this family, okay? The Lord will take care of all the rest of this stuff. But right now we're thinking about a family that we can come alongside, okay?
And, and most of you probably know it's a humbling thing to have to accept something like that, right? And that's when it gets to be fun to be the body too in that way. And, uh, and so I went to them earlier this week, Ashley and I did, and I said, look, I'm sort of asking for permission and sort of just telling you what's going to happen here, okay? Um, so we're going to learn more about that story in, in the, over the next few weeks um, because it's a story for them to tell how they want to tell it. But what we need to know is we've got an opportunity to prayerfully seek the Lord and say, Lord, how can I be generous and sacrificial and giving to help a family in, my, in, in, in our fellowship, right, uh, to tell this, this story of life? Amen? Okay. Well, <clears throat> so all of that is heard clearly, right? <laughs> Statements have been made. And... Uh, it's good for you to know where we stand as a fellowship. And, and as we get back into the text here this morning, just like we did last week, I think, I think so often we can move so quickly through the first part of this letter and, and miss to a degree what Paul is doing in establishing the value of life. But I would add these two things today, and we'll see them here. The value of life, but also the importance of identity and how through identity comes unity in the body. So as we began our study last week, and we're just 10 verses in so far, and we, as you've gathered already, won't make it much further today, uh, given what we have to cover and our opportunity for communion. But next week, we'll cover some good ground, don't worry. And, and uh, like any biblical text, 1 Corinthians gives us much to chew on and provides plenty of opportunity to go deep. Now, I've heard from many of you as you've been doing your own reading, your own personal reading, that you're experiencing the same. And I, and I hope that you guys are doing that, by the way, taking the opportunity during the week to read in anticipation of Sunday or following Sunday to let the Holy Spirit do its work in your life. Let these truths sink in. It's a good discipline to have. And so today, as we're really just getting started on this study still, we'll, we'll do a little bit of review from verse 1. Now remember, Paul was teaching and preaching in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. And we'll see today that he began to hear reports from the household of Chloe concerning quarrels in the church at Corinth. Now the church, because of things that were beginning to come up, because of disputes that they were having, they had sent a delegation of three men to Paul. They brought a letter that requested Paul's opinions on certain issues, things like disputes over spiritual gifts, issues around the Lord's Supper, questions about the resurrection, various doctrinal matters. And we'll see that as the letter progresses that Paul will address those things. He will answer some of those questions. And we're going to gain much insight in this letter on those doctrinal matters as a result. But here's the thing. The delegation in the letter that came to Paul, it didn't include all of the issues. They left some things out. Rather, Paul heard from the household of Chloe about other divisions. It's as if and truly, it was, it was this way. Someone had now come to Paul, someone who knew the fellowship there, who was probably, Chloe's household was uh, both present in Corinth, but also maybe had some business dealings in Ephesus. And they came to Paul, and they said, Hey, Paul, there's some problems. In case you haven't heard, there's some stuff that's happening back at the church in Corinth, and I really think you need to get involved. You need to address this. And so uh, it, it, the, the urgency was, was heightened. 
And so Paul writes this letter in response to the problems and the questions. And what we will see is that what he first addresses is the issue of unity. Now, this letter was probably written around 56 AD. And so it's a couple of decades now have passed since Jesus ascended and the church was birthed. Plenty of time for some real problems to arise. And so 1 Corinthians reveals then the problems and and the pressures and the struggles of a church that's called out of a pagan culture. And we know it's not easy being set apart, being different from the world around you. The world has sort of a pull, doesn't it? But we saw last week, no, no matter the problems here, Paul still saw fit to provide words of encouragement to these believers. And it's these words of encouragement that help us to see once again the inherent value and worth that God places upon them, those whom he has created. And we can know this value by surrendering our lives to him. And so once again, we'll move through this a little bit more quickly this morning as we went into it in depth last week, verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So Paul is dictating here to a scribe. Now it would seem that Sosthenes here was with Paul in Corinth at the time, and that he was the ruler of the synagogue. Presumably he's taken over once Paul had led the previous ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, to Christ. Now, some say Sosthenes was persecuted. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18, that he was persecuted for having taken sort of a stand in protecting Paul when he was brought before the proconsul. Um, And and I spoke to that this past week, but as I did, I was troubled by it as I went back and kept rereading through Acts chapter 18. And Acts chapter 18 doesn't really read that way. In fact, the way that it reads would suggest that it was Sosthenes himself that brought Paul before the proconsul Gallio, accusing him of, 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 of a false gospel, speaking in the name of Christ, contrary to the Jewish faith. And, and so then what happens really here is that Gallio kind of says, look, I, I, don't, I don't care. I don't really want to be a part of that. And he sort of dismisses it. And then the Greeks who are there end up beating Sosthenes as some sort of like anti-Semitic backlash, just sort of like, well, we're going to, I don't know, you wasted our time or we just don't really like you. Here's an opportunity to beat this guy up. So Sosthenes tries to take Paul before the proconsul and ends up getting beat up. And what happens from there? Well, Acts doesn't really tell us, but this letter does because it seems that not only was Paul successful in leading the first ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, to Christ, but it seems he's also done the same with Sosthenes. And the implication then here being that now he's referring to Sosthenes not only as a brother, but that he's there with him and he's helping him to write the letter. Isn't that amazing? And so this is one of those moments where this guy clearly hated Paul, and now he's with him and he loves him. And I would just want us not to miss that here this morning as we continue to, in this in-between time, sort of by the strength of the Spirit, move forward each day. Oftentimes it's difficult, right? And we're praying for people and you want people to be, to be changed. You want to see transformation in people's lives. You're, you're, you're praying for, for people to get saved. And, and there's hope, Right? There's hope for this. This is one of those moments. This was a guy who, who Paul probably thought to some degree, like, Man, maybe not this guy. <laughs> this guy tried to have me thrown out of here. But maybe for Paul, too, he's thinking, I was that guy. 
And, and for many of us, we probably have people like that in our lives that we're thinking a little bit like, I don't know. I don't know where this person's at. I don't know what, what's God going to do in this person's life. Could God really save this person? Yes, he can. He can. Now in verse 2, Paul begins to address the church, and we broke this down last week, but one thing that we didn't really consider in verse 2 is this word church. Read verse 2 with me. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So again, this greeting itself is packed with truths of the value that these believers possess, and they possess this value purely because of God's grace, and the same is true for us. They are sanctified. This literally means holy. Holy means different. These are people who have been set apart, called. He calls them saints. But here they are referred to as the church. Now this is the Greek word ekklesia. It's where the word ecclesia or ecclesiology comes from, the study of the church. And it means literally the called out ones. Now, Paul does not always write his greeting this way. Corinth is not the only one, but Paul does not use this language in every letter, and so I think his use of it here to the church in Corinth is significant. Corinth, as we know, was very much a pagan culture, and many influences of the world had made their way into this church. And Paul here is reminding them, you are the church, the bride of Christ, You have been called out. Not like, oh, I'm calling you out. I'm going to tell everybody what you've done. No, I'm calling you out from this. Friends, we need to hear this today. The church is called to be different. Called to be set apart. We are, in fact, to be exiles. Sojourners in this world. There are issues that we are called to stand up for. Hopefully that was evident this morning. Truths that we are called to declare. Ways in which we are to live our lives. Our freedom, the exodus that God has led us on, was to lead us out of bondage to Egypt, which is a picture of the world. We have been, if you are in Christ, He has led you on an exodus out of this world. And not just into freedom to do whatever you want to do, No, you went from bondage to covenant and to a relationship with Him. From the very beginning, God has been about setting His people apart, making them unique and separate, different. And not better, as it were, but different and positioned then to be a blessing to the world. Our being called out, our being set apart, is not just because, oh, you deserve it, and so here's this little special experience for you. No, it's you don't deserve this, but I'm doing it anyway to use you for my glory to be a blessing to the rest of the world and to be about leading people then into that same relationship. But the question becomes, what, do, what does the world see when they see his church? What do they see when they see, let's forget about the church, let's, let's talk about this one. What do they see when they see this church? What if when you say that you're a Christian, that you belong to a fellowship, are we that bright city on a hill, set apart in a beacon of hope? Or are we just a lesser form of the things of this world, attempting to be like this world but failing at doing so, constantly attempting to be something that we're not? 
You see, so much of this first chapter, as I've said already, is about identity. God wants us to know who we are. And when we know who we are, and we know that he equips us to be who we are, and that he will then use us in that way, and that our future is secure in him, then we can be boldly different. Christian, you are a part of a called out people whom the creator God of the universe has called. And you are being built up by him, established by him. You are a part of his church, which Jesus himself built and is building, whom he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I wonder, do we act like we know that? Do we live like we know that? Do we live in that truth? Do we walk in that identity? Paul from here says, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see, you see how much can be contained in two verses? About what he's communicating as to their identity? Here wanting them to understand this is who you are. And so he says, grace to you and peace from God. That's unmerited favor to you, which always leads to peace. It's the pattern to know his grace is to know peace, not the other way around. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Let's go all the way through verse 9. That you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Such encouragement for these struggling believers, reminding them of their giftings, of the equipping of the Lord, the promise of his working until the very end, reassurance of righteousness and of their calling into the fellowship of Christ. And as we will continue to see, such encouragement was not a product of what they had done or what they had earned, but it was about God's grace in their lives, his favor towards them. And I, and I think that is what is so profound here is that this is both present, even though things weren't going all that well, but also future-oriented. So that even though there are issues to be addressed in this fellowship, there is a sense of, of, of look, Jesus is going to do this. He's going to confirm you to the end. Your future is sure, Christian. Just trust Him. Anybody need a sense of confidence in their future these days? I thought so, right? Things seem to be a little unknown. We don't quite know what we're going to face when we wake up the next morning. But there is one who does. And he promises to equip you for each day. So God's grace, this unmerited favor, is what gave them value. It's what gave them assurance. And this is the reminder for us that our value and our worth and our identity and our future is to be found in Him. And when we get that, that this is a commonality that we all share, then we will also experience unity in the body. And this is where Paul goes next. Verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same 
thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. This is Paul's appeal to unity. What does he say? He says, speak the same. What does that mean? This would mean agree with one another. Be in agreement. No divisions, he says, which is the Greek word schismata, from which we get the word schism, and it speaks of a tearing apart, which tells us that the church is an organism of sorts, a unified body, and it was being torn apart. It wasn't just that they were set apart, they were being torn apart. There is a violence in this language. And it was because of the division that was coming in. Now Paul says, have the same mind, the same judgment. What Paul was calling them to to do was to adjust their thinking and bring it in line with the gospel. Yes, unity requires that we begin to see things differently. That we be willing to think differently. And Paul wasn't saying, hey, you know, everybody pursue your own truth and, and it's all relative and just think what you want to think and then let's all come together and be happy because that doesn't work, okay? He's calling them to an absolute truth and to form their mind around that truth. But Paul was not calling them, mind you, to sameness. This was not about homogeny. It was about harmony, Because we know in the image of the body of Christ, as we've considered and will continue to consider, there are different giftings that God has created us all uniquely. But he brings us together to form a body. It's interesting. And this tells us something here, that Paul deals with this, that that unity and addressing division was the priority for Paul. Think of the other things going on, if you're familiar at all with this letter, think of the other things that were going on that Paul could have easily dealt with first. Folks were sleeping around. There was sexual immorality. There was, it was increasing amongst them. There were lawsuits amongst the body. They were suing one another. There was abuse of spiritual gifts. They'd made a mockery of communion. They were being fractured along lines of preference and of social status. But these things, in many ways, were simply the symptoms of something else. So Paul starts with an appeal to unity because it's foundational. Because he knows, and this is true for us, that an understanding of these things will contribute to humility and receptivity to then those other things that he's going to deal with. If he can establish that the ground is in fact level at the foot of the cross, that no one is better than the other one, that we are all recipients of the grace of God, then maybe for a moment we'll just shut up and listen. Right? And so, it's true here too. No doubt, there is amongst us here today sin issues. I don't think anybody came through the door, hopefully didn't, thinking, I'm perfect. I've arrived. Here I am, everyone. If that's you, heads up. It's going to be a painful week. There are issues represented by each of us. And, the thing, and there's things in our lives that the Lord would like to deal with. And we could take the approach, even leadership within the church, we could take the approach of going around and trying to sort of adjudicate each matter. You go up to this person and say, well, what's the issue in your life? Oh, that, well, that's bad. And don't do that. And let's go, well, now this one, that's bad. Don't do that. And this one, that's bad. Don't do that. These things may be true. 
But imagine if in our corporate gatherings we could instead focus on here's what God has done. Here's the truth of the gospel. Here's what it means for you and who you are and your identity and, and, and to build that, to establish that foundation. And then from there, we can begin to have an understanding of, of what right does look like. But so often we just go around and we, we try to just attack all the different symptoms. And then comes legalism and a lack of grace and burnout. And Do we know what it is that so often threatens Unity. This would be a key point that I would want you to write down today. Really, in my notes, it was the first one, and here we are almost done. Unity in the church is so often threatened when God's people forget who they are. Unity in the church is so often threatened when God's people forget who they are. And would you say there's an assault on identity in our world today? Why do you think that is? Identity is part of the original sin. You can be someone else, not who God created you to be. So Paul begins to deal then with the issue before them in verse 11, verses 11 and 12, for it has been declared to me concerning you. So now he's saying, look, here's what I've heard, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. It speaks of quarreling. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Paul says, verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul addresses here again that he has been informed that there's quarreling among them, that there's fighting, and it's happening along lines of separation between teachers. There are some in Corinth who are saying, well, I'm with Paul. And there's others who are saying, well, I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Peter. And there's some who are saying, oh, you guys, I'm with Jesus. But even that came with an air of superiority. Now, an important thing to note here, and this truly is important for our understanding, because some say this here is becoming sort of a denominational thing. They're beginning to break out in various denominations. And certainly it could eventually go down that path, I suppose. But it's important to see here that Paul, Apollos, Peter, guys, it was the same message. There, there wasn't a sense of doctrinal division here that these guys are, are, are emphasizing this and these guys are emphasizing this. This wasn't so much, at least at this stage in the game, in my opinion, a doctrinal dispute. And so then if we understand that, people might be inclined to say, well, okay, so this is just preference then. Some like this one teacher and others, they like this guy. Paul, Paul, he's a real verse-by-verse -verse guy. He goes deep. And sometimes he loses you a little bit. But Apollos, boy, there's fire in Apollos' preaching. And oh, the worship when you go see Apollos. I love the worship there, Right? Or Peter. Man, Peter's he's the OG disciple, man. It, this, is, this is Peter. How could you not be with Peter? He's the, he's the one who he was way back. And again, well, I'm just a Jesus guy. Just Jesus, right? So yes, there is sort of a preference that's happening here. It's not my intention to suggest that this wasn't becoming or had been somewhat of an issue of preference, but it's more than that. And here's the point. To state again, one of the greatest threats to unity and causes of division in the church is the Christian identity crisis. And the church in Corinth, and still today, was not dividing merely on preference alone, but here's, here's the important matter. They were finding their identity in those preferences. They were aligning with people, 
and they were finding their identity in that, not in Christ. Look, and, and here, here's how we can understand this. Some level of preference is fine. Our church, our fellowship, CCNE, hear me clearly, is for anyone, but it's not for everyone. You hear me in that? It's for anyone, but it's not for everyone. Hence a church that way, that way, that way, that way, that way. There's a lot of them, and a lot of them are pretty good. A lot of them are pretty good. There are good churches across town with pastors who teach with a different style, with worship that's different, which, with ministry that happens a bit differently, and it works for that person, and it's fine. They're brothers and sisters, same house, many rooms. The problem becomes when we say, oh, I'm of Calvary Chapel. And because of that, I'm better than you. Oh, well, you know, Chuck Smith, he's, he's my pastor. And so I'm, I'm sorry for you. You're really missing out. And we do this. We do this. Because this is what the world does. And we carry it into the church. This is the big problem here. It's not simply about preference. It's about identity. Let me ask you this. What things serve to form your identity? If you really stop and think about it, how would you describe who you are? Your identity. What makes you, you? Where you live, where you're from, your background, your culture, what you do, where you go to school, your social status, who you know, what you put on social media. We're constantly trying to tell our story, build our resume, identifying with other things so that we can try and have identity. This is what they did in Corinth. They were looking for who they could identify with as a way of gaining privilege and power and meaning. It's what began to happen in the, in the taking of the Lord's Supper, and we'll deal with that in many chapters. They were beginning to exalt themselves, place themselves, oh, I'm over you and I'm over you. And this is what the world does. And yet it's funny, the world still cries for unity. How in the world is that possible? Ask each person, ask, ask a million people, what their vision of unity is. You get a million answers. Because people are told today, you be you and you do you and truth is relative. But yet be the same. Rally around these things and it's ludicrous. It's, it's making people mad. So the only way to find unity and find identity is to stop looking for it on the horizontal and rather on the vertical. Stephen Newham, you're going to hear a few of his quotes throughout this study, says horizontal factionalism must be eroded by the vertical condescension of God and Christ. Look, Paul says in verses 14 and 16, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other now, I admit I kind of find these two verses funny because here in this inspired text, you still get natural communication. No doubt the wrong tone here, but I can't help it that Paul is sort of like, man, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Well, Crispus and Gaius. Oh, yeah, Stephanus. But I think that's it, right? I can't help but read it that way. Uh, but, but here's what Paul's saying. 
He's saying, it's not about me nor any other man. He says, look, you're not going to find identity and unity in me. And I could add, or anything else in this world. Your value and worth, even in the church, cannot become about who the pastor is or which church you go to and what they've got going on. So many cults of personality and ministry brands and worship brands. Paul says, that's not why I came. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. First thing to note here, just a little doctrinal matter, and if you ever hear anybody say that you're not saved unless you've been baptized, that's wrong. Is baptism important? Yes, absolutely. Jesus established that. But if they say, well, if you haven't been baptized, then you aren't saved, then why in the world would Paul not care all that much about baptism? Why would he say, why wouldn't he say, I was sent to baptize because to, to be baptized is to be saved. No, he said, I came to preach the gospel. When we seek to find our unity or to establish our identity on the horizontal plane of this world, we will come up empty-handed every time. And the problem is for most on this planet, they are in constant pursuit of identity. Because we are created in his image and, and, and because of sin, that has been marred. And so we are on a pursuit to understand our identity, but the world doesn't have the answer. And so, so many people are struggling in that identity crisis. Everything that we look to in this world will simply be a lesser form. We'll be tempted to look at what this world offers, what this world is attracted to. And here's what Paul then begins to deal with because we're easily taken by persuasive words and certain style and the worldly attraction. But what Paul begins to tell us, and we'll deal with this next week, is that the gospel, the cross of Christ, turns all of that upside down. This is where Paul will take his argument next. But for today... You need to ask yourself, what is your identity rooted in? From what are you seeking to gain your value and your worth? What are you looking to on the horizontal plane of this world to provide you with worth and belonging? I would challenge you today, and this would be the third point for your notes. Root your identity in the cross of Christ. And here's the amazing thing is that the humility that is discovered in such a place will give way to amazing unity amongst the body of Christ. I invite David and Victoria to come forward and lead us in song as we take of communion. And as they're doing this, I want to read for you from a passage that should be familiar as recently as Wednesday night in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Christ's vertical condescension. Jesus coming down shatters the walls of horizontal factionalism. It is the ultimate demonstration of humility and the greatest source of identity. The cross of Christ is what we remember and what we celebrate here today as we take communion. Paul says, let this mind be in you. Don't forget who you are, a child of God, the same as everyone else. There's a humility in that. And from that should come unity. And we'll continue to consider that in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, we pause here, Lord, as we begin to close, and we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your spirit that ministers to us, Lord, as we consider it. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to communion, Lord, we ask that you would continue to move in this time and cause us, Lord, to be a people who consider the words here this morning, that we would ingest them, internalize them, and, and truly consider the mind that we are called to have, a mind that recognizes who we are in you, the grace that we've been given, the unmerited favor that's been demonstrated toward us, the ultimate humility, Lord, that you demonstrated is what we are called to. And so, Lord, as we partake of this communion supper here today, as we hold the elements in our hands, the bread and the cup were representative of your body and your blood, may our eyes be opened even more today to who you are, what you have done, and what that means for who we are, that we could leave here today more in love with you, more in love with one another, unified around the cross of Christ, not our preferences, not our pursuits of the things of this world. And so, Lord, do that work here now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.